Wonderful to see you all this morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, great enthusiasm. So as is mentioned, so my name's Stephen. I'm one of the small group leaders in Emmanuel. And I want to give this pitch. If you are a member of the church and you're not really in a small group, I would strongly encourage you. Maybe you could say, oh, well, I'm just going to try it out for January. See how it goes. And if you live in the Fram area, which is where I am, and you want to come along, please do, because we have lots of extra chocolate uh, that is lingering from Christmas that we are trying to get rid of. So it would be a great service to me and my wife in our commitment to a diet if you came and ate our chocolate for us. Please do that. Yeah, okay, I hear some agreement. So we are starting a new preaching series, and Alan is uh, very kind, but... He has put thought into this series. It is not an accident. John is a big book. It's 21 chapters, and we're not doing all of those chapters. We couldn't because they wouldn't be able to fit it into finishing with the resurrection. So there's credit. You, there's, there's real thought. There is real thought that's gone into this series, which is great. But when I was given the job to, to kind of launch it off, so I'm doing a bit of an introduction generally be out John, and I'm also going to do half of chapter one. But when I was kind of given this job, I was kind of reminded of when I was, uh, I'm not 18, but I was 18 once upon a time. I was 18 years old. I was traveling around the world, and I found myself in America at the Grand Canyon. And I got to it, and I was breathless, like looking at this huge, huge canyon that it's beyond your periphery you can't you look right you look left you can't see it in all one go but I'm there and I know my parents are tucked away in England so I have my little camera and I'm taking a picture of the Grand Canyon and then I take a picture and a picture and I'm hoping I get some idea of what it's like and the pictures just don't do it justice you can't really see it. And I feel like this is me, like trying to bring something of John's gospel to you now. I feel I can't really give it justice. But anyway, it's still worth standing and looking at the Grand Canyon. It's still worth looking at it, even if you can't grasp it all, even if you only have a picture, even if you're like, oh, this is so amazing. How can I describe it? That's the same thing for John. We're not going to see it all. In any one sitting, in any one lifetime, you're not going to see it all because there is so much here to see. One man, Gregory the Great, that's a nice title, Gregory the Great in the 6th century, he said about scripture, it's like a river, broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, deep enough there for the elephant to swim. And that is what we've got here in the book of John. It is, in one sense, fairly easy to understand, but there is depth, and you can go swimming, and you can have a great time in it. So what is John? It is it's in the New Testament, part of the Bible, and it's talking about the life of Jesus. And there are some other books that do the same, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And these are referred to as the synoptic gospels. And that means that they have a common perspective. They generally follow the same kind of timeline. They generally have the same kind of content. And they are fairly similar to each other, but with some different emphases. 
And the church fathers tell us that Matthew, the tax collector, he wrote his own book. And Peter was the source for Mark writing his. Luke, he was a historian. He traveled around with Paul. He did his own research and he had his own book. And what about John? Who is this John? Well, we understand that he is one of the 12 apostles and he refers to himself quite nicely as the beloved disciple. <laughs> Who are you? I'm the beloved disciple. And you? <laughs> Dinner party introductions and all that. And Irenaeus in the early church, writing in the second century, he said that afterward, John, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, afterward, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had also leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. And if anyone wants to go to Ephesus, come and talk to me later, and I'll take you, maybe. (laughs) Now, John, in one level, is obviously very similar. There are some, there's some very obvious crossover here. He's announced, uh, Jesus is announced by John the Baptist. Jesus teaches. He works miracles. And the common one for all of these gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. He comes into conflict with the Jewish leaders. And he is then tried by the Jews, by the Romans. He's crucified to death. He's buried. He's raised from the dead. That's common to everything. But, you might notice there are some significant differences between John and these other synoptic Gospels. Some things you might notice are missing. What's missing? There's no account of Jesus' birth. There's no account of Jesus getting baptized. There's no temptation. There's no transfiguration. There are no accounts of Jesus delivering anyone of evil spirits. There are no parables There's no Last Supper, there's no Garden of Gethsemane, and there's no Ascension. So lots of things are kind of not there. And there are some other things that are there, and you're like, really, why? What's the kind of point about this? There are some several Aramaic phrases, that's the language that Jesus spoke, that is translated so that we understand, but it's there. Jesus turns water into wine using water from some stone pots. How many? Six. Six stone pots. Why does that make a difference? Five, six, who cares? Six stone pots. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with some bread. What type of bread? Barley bread. Why does that make a difference? Who cares if it's barley? I don't care if it's sourdough. Why does that matter? But it's barley bread. It's in there. The disciples, they row out on the lake. How far? Three to four miles. Three times Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. The house is filled with the smell of perfume. The inscription upon the cross is written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. At the cross, when Jesus dies, there are four soldiers in John. Four soldiers, they take his clothing, and there's one extra piece of clothing, a seamless tunic, and so they gamble to take it. Why all these details? What is it? What difference does it make? What about the, the geography? John is full of geographical detail. In chapter 5, the man is healed at the pool of Bethesda. And that's described as having five porches. For years, many people, they couldn't find this place. And so they thought, well, John is just making this stuff up. Until 1888, and an archaeologist finds the pool of Bethesda. 
So what do all these details tell us? What, what difference does it make if you're giving a lot of detail about anything? Well, it's to test your credibility. It shows that this is from someone who was there. Why barley loaves? Because John was there. Why stone pots? Because John's there. Why three to four miles and they're rowing out? John knows the difference between two miles and five miles. Three to four miles. He's, he's there. He's there. He knows the geography. He's giving all this detail so that we, 2,000 years later, when we come to this text, we might have a bit of confidence that this is someone who was really there. He was really there. And instead of parables, we have this, this teaching in metaphors. Seven times in the gospel, we find that Jesus says that he, he is the I am, he introduces himself as. I am the vine. I am the gate. And if you know your Old Testament, you might have a connection here. Because how does God introduce himself? I am who I am. And I really remember this very clearly. Once upon a time, I was living in Istanbul teaching English. And I was teaching English to one guy who had come over from Afghanistan. And I got him a Bible. This was at the time when the, the, the Taliban were in power. So he was there living in Istanbul studying to be an engineer, learning a bit of English. I got him a Bible in, in Persian. And I found him the Old Testament where it says, I am who I am. He, I, I found it, read it out, he reads it out. And then I take him to the New Testament. He reads it out and he stops. And he's like, and it just dawns on him who Jesus is. And then his reaction was, I can't take this book back to Afghanistan, you know. If people find it, they'll kill me. But he knew. He knew exactly who Jesus was at that point. I'm losing my notes. When Jesus says that I am the gate, you know that he's not actually a gate, right? <laughs> you know, there is this idea, the metaphor idea is conveying something. A gate, not to be blown open by the wind, but a gate, you go through it. You want to get to eternal life? There's no kind of shortcut. You can't go anywhere else apart from through Jesus. I am the gate. And we do understand that. When the BBC says, oh, uh, Downing Street, give an announcement, we don't understand that it's like the street talking, right? We do understand that this metaphorical idea is divided into four parts. We have the prologue, which is what I'm going to do today. Then we've got this big length, chapters 1 to 11, when we have Jesus giving seven signs. And behind each sign is a message and an explanation. You want to know the first sign? Then you have to come next week. (laughs) And then it's chapters 12 to 20, the book of glory, the last week of Jesus' life, leading up to the cross and his death and his resurrection. And then John 21, it's kind of the, the, the epilogue. It kind of ties everything off. Jesus has a charcoal fire by a beach, has some fish, has breakfast. And it's one of my resolutions this year to go to Sea and Beach to make a charcoal fire, to have some fish, and to read John 21. And maybe Alan will be with me, a man that likes fish. I'll bring the chips. <laughs> Now, John specifically tells us that he hasn't covered everything. 
But what he does write about, he writes for a purpose. He says this, John 20, 30 to 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in his name. That is why the book is here. It's not so that we can like think, oh, I didn't know John's gospel. I know all about it. I know all these details. I can tell you this. I can tell you that. I can tell you everything. Who cares? That's great. <laughs> but we read this so that we might believe. We read this so that we might believe and that believing we might have life. We might have life. Otherwise, what's the point? What is the point? But that purpose is this. So, uh, without further ado, I'm going to read John 1, 1 to 18. Now, I'm reading from the NASB. If you have a Bible, I really would encourage you to open it up and to kind of follow through with me as we go. There might be one on the screen, I don't know. But I've got the NASB version here. So, here it is. John 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Amen. Well, how do you feel about that? <laughs> Diving in deep. Here we go. Well, how does this start? How is it different from the other Gospels that I've mentioned? Mark starts like that. Jesus is 30 years old, into ministry. Here we go, here we go, here we go. And Mark is always immediately. Matthew starts, because he's writing to a Jewish audience, it starts with a genealogy that goes back to Abraham. Makes sense? He's presenting Jesus as the king of the Jews. Luke 
writing to a largely a Gentile audience, he goes back as far as Adam because he wants to encompass everyone. What about John? What about John? He starts with a word that exists in eternity. He takes us all the way back to Genesis. He rolls back the curtain of time. In the beginning, in the beginning, before creation in eternity itself, in the beginning, this is where the word is, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the Bible is telling us that right here in eternity, God exists with his word, his reason, if you like, his communication. Trying to interpret this word in Greek, logos, is really tricky. But the point is that God has always had his word. There's not a time when God is like wordless. There's not a time when God is silent, when God is without this. And this is a bit of a Greek idea, but it's a very Old Testament idea as well. And through this eternal word that's always been, how many things come into being? Some things, most things, all things, all things come into being. All things come into being through him. Apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. That's quite emphatic. If you ever meet someone who is a Jehovah's Witness, they might have their Bible and they might show you this chapter, John 1, and you might notice that they have an extra word placed in their text. In the Jehovah's Witness Bible, it says this. It says, all other things, all other things, because they want to say that Jesus is actually created as well. They want to say that God starts off by creating Jesus and thereafter he creates everything else. So all other things. But that is not what this says. It is not. The eternal word has always existed with God. Through this eternal word, all things have been created. And it reiterates again. There's nothing that's outside this box. All things are created by the eternal word. And isn't that what we read when we're reading Genesis? How does God create? What exactly happens? God says. God speaks. God said. Let there be. And there was. God said. God speaks. And there is. That's how he creates. In Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And the breath of his mouth, all their lights. That's how God creates. So there's never a time when God is wordless. There's never a time when the word is not with God. And then John says, he tells us that the word is life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or did not overcome it. The true light that comes into the world enlightens every man. So what is this darkness? Are we talking like not enough candles or no electricity or that kind of thing? It's clearly not a good thing. It's not a good thing to be walking in darkness. It's something that God is calling people out of. But you know as well as I do that the idea of darkness and light, they are opposites, but they're not equal in power, are they? If I've got a box of darkness in my pocket and I unleash it now, not much is going to happen. Because there's light in this room. If everything is dark in here and I have one little candle, it will light up everything. Yeah? 
So it's not like they, they, are, they are opposite each other, but not in equal power. The light of the world, the light of men, is in, incredibly, it's, it's not matched. The light overcomes the darkness. It overcomes the darkness in this world. Overcomes the darkness wherever we see it, including in our own lives. Now, if you've ever lived in a student house, you might be familiar with something called mold. Anyone uh, have a... Where does mold grow? In darkness. In darkness and in cold conditions because they can't afford to turn the heating on. Sad. But this mold... These, this mold and stuff, it, it's not photosynthetic. The uh, biologist at the back will tell me. It doesn't use light to generate energy. In fact, sunlight will kill mold. That's why you kind of have, you find it in the back of a cupboard somewhere or something like that or in a, in a corner of a ceiling if you're in a student house. Or maybe in another house. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah said, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And this is Jesus coming. He comes to bring light. But he brings light literally everywhere into this world. He brings light everywhere. He brings light into this world generally. What we see and we recognize, it's easy to see the evil that's there outside. But he brings light to the inside as well. And we, and speaking, if you're a Christian, you are righteous, you are justified, etc. And yet we all wrestle with sin the flesh, and the devil. And we find darkness in ourselves too from time to time. But the point I want to make here is this. When we see it, when we see darkness, we should also get a bit of encouragement that the light is always going to be stronger than it. So we need not be afraid, brothers and sisters, to bring things into the light. We need not be afraid when we kind of confront darkness in our lives that something is stronger than anything that Jesus will bring. It's never stronger. That's just a misconception. It's a deception to think, oh, I'm struggling with this, that, and this. All of these things, they're so bad, I can never talk to anyone about it. Well, the light overcomes the darkness, wherever you find it. In the world, in our places, in the darkness, the light shines. Jesus brings light to how many people? Every man. Every man. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was at this conference. It was in, uh, it was a new wine uh, conference in the south of England, big tent. I'd refused to sing any of the songs until Thursday night. And on the Thursday night, I sang, and I knew that God was real. And the song that I sang was from Kevin Prosh, and it was Come to the Light. Come to the Light. Come as you are. You can be a friend of God. Humble yourself. Give him your heart. He will meet you where you are. Come to the light just as you are. Fall on the rock for the wasted years. He will restore all that was lost. Surrender now. His power is here. And I sang that song and I was like, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. I'm coming to the light. But what's the response? So the light comes. What's the response? Well, verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Isn't that incredibly ironic? You have the whole creator of the world comes to the world, and the world doesn't know him. 
And you have the one who has shepherded Israel into existence, comes to them, and they don't receive him. That's the response. That's the response. And it's a little bit like skipping to Matthew, the wicked tenants, the parable there, where the, the, the vineyard is rented out, and yet they refuse to acknowledge the owner. And this theme of people recognizing Jesus comes throughout all of the book. People kind of get a little understanding as to who he is, and then the lights are on. This is who he is. The woman at the well doesn't immediately understand him. The man who is born blind doesn't immediately. Even Jesus' own disciples, they don't immediately understand who he is. And yet, they understand. And then they do receive him. Then they do accept him. So there's promise here for us too. But why can't God make himself more obvious? You know, he's coming to the world and they don't receive him. Why can't you just come with, with, I don't know, do some miracles like walk on water or something? Why can't you just do something like, like feed 5,000 people? Then we'll, oh, you did that. Yeah. So why, why can't God make himself more obvious? You might ask that often. Well, Pascal, writing in the 17th century, said this, God has willed to make himself appear openly to those who seek him with all their heart and to be hidden from those who flee from him with all their heart. He so regulates the knowledge of himself that he's given signs of himself visible to those who seek him and not to those who seek him not. There's enough light for those who only desire to see him and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. I think that's a nice explanation. Because going through this gospel, all sorts of people see Jesus. And some respond and some don't. But they're seeing the same thing, right? They're seeing the same Jesus. Jesus isn't presenting himself any differently. He's there. And there is this different response. But for those that do respond, what do they get? They get the right to be born again. The right to become children of God. And this is amazing. Martin Luther, he translated the, the Bible into German. And he's like writing some stuff on the, on the side. Maybe you do that in your Bible. You write some things on the text. It's easy if you have a physical Bible. Tricky for the digital. Nevertheless, Martin Luther, he's writing, gets a revelation, talks about the last judgment. In the side he writes, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. That's pretty cool. Well done, Martin Luther. Got there. And the Bible talks about being born again, obviously not physically, but spiritually. Because we must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. We suffer with this issue of sin. And spiritually, therefore, we are dead. Spiritually, we're dead. What do you do with someone spiritually dead? You give them like a pat on the shoulder. Well, uh, it will be okay tomorrow. No, I don't think so. You're still going to be dead tomorrow. <laughs> Someone who is spiritually dead, what do they need? They need to be spiritually alive again, born again. And here's the promise that comes. You can be born again. And when I was actually born again, it was a, a bit of a shock. I was like, hang on, I actually am a different person. <laughs> Something actually has happened the, the, yesterday, that was the old Stephen over there, who is 
different to the Stephen now, because I have been born again. And that's an amazing promise, promise for everyone here, everyone in this room. If you haven't been born again, it's for you. It's for you. Do you need it? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And now this word, this eternal word that creates all things, this word becomes flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The word is actually tabernacled. Remind you of anything in the Old Testament? What was, oh, that was the, yeah, the tabernacle, the tent, the place, the presence of God that they would follow, that they would walk with in the wilderness. Flesh. He becomes flesh. Flesh like me. I have, a, I have flesh. Here's my flesh. Alan has flesh. Maybe a bit more flesh, not so. <laughs> But this flesh, it's not simply my my body, right? It's more than that. Because I I do have a body, but I'm also very aware I've got feelings, I've got my soul, I've got a spirit. There's more to me than just this, these, these pieces. And there's more to Jesus than simply just a physical body. Becoming flesh, he really becomes genuinely human. His soul is troubled. My soul is troubled, he says, chapter 12. At the grave of, uh, with Lazarus when he finds him dead, how does Jesus respond? Like a, like a stone? And he weeps. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And it's really, it's essential that he's not kind of like pretend human or, or not simply just like a body like inhabited by this eternal word. He is genuinely human as much as you and me. Because to save me, he has to become human. And to save me, he also has to be the eternal God. So you have this duality. Jesus is fully, absolutely human. Jesus is fully, absolutely God. And the two come together. They are essential to be held in that way. Jesus can fully save us in this way. Because if he was just a nice prophet... Well, you can't, sorry, ultimately you might be a great prophet, but if you are a created being, you're still a created being. And the Old Testament reiterates again and again and again, yes, God sends his prophets, but who does the saving? It is always God that saves. It's not people that save anything. It's always God that saves. So we need a savior who is fully God and who is fully man. The word becomes flesh. And dwells amongst us. And how does he save us? Does he save us by by bringing another law? No. We've got the law. Through Through Moses comes the law. 613 different laws. Ten commandments. Anyone recite them? No one here. Ah, there must be someone. I'm not going to push you, but I'm sure there's someone that knows the Ten Commandments. Yeah, Lucy at the back. Thank you. One. But what is the law? What's the purpose of it? It's like a market. It shows us what is wrong. Because left to my own devices, if you were to say, hey, Stephen, give me 10 commandments. Uh, Give me some commandments, perhaps. Tell me what's right, what's wrong. I'll probably give you three. Three, the commandments of Stephen, yeah? Be like, not very much, really. Uh, But here we have, God gives a lot more than that. My point is, our own devices our own instinct will say 
not very much is wrong after all. And yet coming to the Bible, this is when we can really work out what is right and what is wrong. And that is the purpose of the law. It's like it highlights us. I go to the doctor, I get a diagnosis. Stephen, you're ill, this is the problem. Thank you very much. Now I know what the diagnosis is. That's what the law does. But you only need it once. And it doesn't sort you out. It doesn't sort you out. Through Moses comes the law. Through Jesus comes grace and truth. Salvation's coming. Salvation's coming. And it's born out of grace and truth. And now we can fully understand who God is. When the word becomes flesh, we can know who he is. What did Moses ask of God? Do you remember? I want to see your face. And what did God say to him? You can't. (laughs) Sorry, Moses. Your prayer is denied. (laughs) You can see my back. You can't see my face. Ah. And here we are. Verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. Later, Jesus talks to his uh, disciples and they're puzzling over who he is. Chapter 12. And he says this. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. We're here and we might be wondering, well, what's God really like? Let's look at Jesus. That's what you'll see, what God is really like. Does God care? Does God care when people die? Jesus wept. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Does he understand mental health? Does he understand? His soul was troubled coming to Jerusalem when he suffered at the cross. He knows. God now knows. God knows. And this is who he is. When we're puzzled, what is God like? The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Really, a bit uncertain, not so sure. Jesus, what does he say about himself? And as we go through these next weeks, we are going to see more of who Jesus is. It's going to be really exciting. It's going to be a great time to be here. We're going to learn together. Who is Jesus? Who is he? How does he relate to me? What does he say to me? Does he condemn me? No. Go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. But equally, go and sin no more. What's he going to say? I give light to you. I open up your blind eyes. You can see. Oh, Can I follow you? Yes, come and follow me. He's going to speak. He speaks to each one of us. Now, at the end of this, it was from this passage that the early church came up with something called the Nicene Creed, 325. And they said this, amazing words. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. It's just remarkable. And this is who we serve. This is who we love. But I want to leave you with one more thing. Because in this whole passage, we have this mention of John. John the Baptist, we would know him from the other Gospels. He's never referred to as John the Baptist here, but he is the same guy. And we see John kind of weaving in 
and out of the text. And you read the rest of the chapter, you'll find a lot more of him. And John does this. He witnesses. John is the witness. John witnesses. This is who Jesus is. There was a man sent from God. He came as a witness. He wasn't a light, but he came so that all might believe, all might believe through him. And then he sees Jesus later, and he says, Ah, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. They knew a lot about lambs in those days. Every morning, every evening, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple. Every morning, every evening. And this is the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God. He's going to die. Right from the beginning of the ministry, it's announced he is going to die. And the purpose is also announced for the sins of the world. My sins, your sins, the world's sins upon his shoulders, a sacrifice for all. And John is the one that does that saying. There he is. There he is, the Lamb of God. I am a witness, not to myself, but to him. And what happens when he does that? Some of John's own disciples walking along with him. And then John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. They heard John speak, and they followed Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that is something that is for us all. It's for each one of us here. We are called to be like that. We're supposed to be in the story ourselves. We're supposed to be, like John, a witness. And for some of us, that means going to the marketplace and preaching or whatever. And for others of us, it means on a Monday morning with friends at work, how was your weekend? Have a nice time? Yeah, I was at, I did X, Y, Z. I was at church on Sunday. There was this message. Can I tell you about the message? That's what it means. Or you're with your friends at a cafe. Hey, uh, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, this weekend... I'm going to church. Really? Yeah, well, actually, I'm a Christian, and I believe in Jesus. Have you heard about him? Have you heard about him? Let them hear my words, and let them follow him. Because I'm not the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, but he is. And that's where salvation is. We are, I think we're finished. I'm not quite sure what, if the band has any plans. Does the band, where's the band? Band, band? <laughs> I can see one band. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where the rest of the band is. But um, what we do, what, band, irrespective of a band. What we do want to do is pray. And so uh, the band might do something, but we will have a bit of time uh, of praying as well. Because we want to know who this, who this Jesus is. But... We also, and I want to say this from what I've said, if you feel there's darkness that you're struggling with, we want to pray with you about that. Because we don't want anyone to feel overwhelmed by that. Because the promise is that the light has come and the light overcomes that darkness. And maybe another thing that's worth praying about, if you're like, oh, no way, I am going to be a witness for Jesus. That is definitely someone else's job. That's Alan's job. All the way, that's Alan's job. Well, no, it's not. It's your job too. <laughs> and if that's like, if that grips you with fear and panic and terror, well, let it not. 
Let it not grip you with fear and panic and terror. Let's, let's just stand with someone, pray about it, be free. Let the Lord minister his grace and power through you to other people. Let you be the voice that speaks and other people follow and worship Jesus. Let me pray. And then the band, they're here. They're here. The band will take it along. Father, we thank you for your word that you've spoken to us. And we pray, let this word be rooted in each of our hearts. Let it bear fruit. May it bear fruit. Amen.